Good afternoon and welcome to AFP's event with Senator Ted Cruz. Uh, we're hoping to have a great attendance today. This is a very important issue. We are talking about the future of the Supreme Court of the United States. I'm Ted Ellis, Coalition's Director for Americans for Prosperity. Joining me are my colleagues, Casey Maddox, VP of Judicial Strategy, and Tim Phillips, our president. And of course, our featured guest today is Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, a true friend of AFP, and we're very glad to have him on. And what a timely opportunity this is with Justice Amy Coney Barrett being confirmed just yesterday to the Supreme Court. We are here to talk about now the future of the Supreme Court, and Senator Cruz is a fantastic guest to have on. He is not only a former clerk at the Supreme Court, he is also an active court watcher and the author of One Vote Away, How a Single Supreme Court Seat Can Change History, which is a New York Times and Amazon bestseller. So I'm going to kick it over to my colleague, Tim, for just a couple of remarks. Thanks very much. Thanks, Ted. Boy, what an exciting night last evening watching the United States Senate, 52 to 48, as many of you know now. Uh, Senator Cruz, you've been a leader in this effort, this confirmation effort. Can you give us a sense uh, of what this uh, confirmation of Judge Barrett or Justice Barrett now means more broadly for the Supreme Court in your view? And, and also, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Casey. And, and thank you, everyone, for uh, uh, joining with this, this conversation this afternoon. Uh, yesterday was a big, big deal. Uh, yesterday was a victory, I believe, for the U.S. Constitution. Uh, yesterday, President Trump delivered on his promise to the American people to nominate principled constitutionalists to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I think yesterday, the Republican majority in the Senate uh, delivered on our promise to confirm principled constitutionalists to the court. And, and, and I just want to start by thanking everyone at AFP. Uh, the, the, the men and women on this call, uh, you guys have, have worked and, and, and you bled and, and put sweat and blood and tears into fighting to turn people out, into fighting uh, to win elections, uh, precisely to ensure that we have principled constitutionalists who will defend the Bill of Rights, defend our fundamental liberties, and I, and I think yesterday's election, was, or yesterday's confirmation rather, was a major, major step forward in doing so. Senator Cruz, uh, you know, last night we, we heard from Amy Coney Barrett, really heard this through the entire confirmation process from her, but we heard again last night from her at the White House that uh, she's going on the Supreme Court not to be a policymaker, not to make law. Um, that's that's the, the job of, of folks like you across the street. Um, from the Supreme Court. Uh, why is that so critically important? Why is it, you know, we, we've heard that as a, as a big theme during this, this process. Why is it that particularly Senate Republicans and uh, Justice Barrett herself have made such a big deal about that difference uh, between the role of the judge and the, and the senators? Well, you know, Casey, that really goes to a, a fundamental difference between the two parties in terms of, of, of a vision for what judges are supposed to do. Uh, if you look at the framers of the Constitution, uh, they describe the judiciary as, quote, the least dangerous branch. Uh, and the reason they envisioned it as a least dangerous branch is they said that it can neither make law nor enforce law. It simply adjudicates disputes uh, concerning a particular question of law. Uh, that changed, and it started changing really in the 1960s and 1970s, 
Uh, Ted mentioned uh, the book that I have that came out a few weeks ago called One Vote Away, uh, how a single Supreme Court seat can change history. And I, and, I, and I explain in the book how in the 1960s and 70s, the left made a conscious decision to go to the courts and to use the courts to advance their policy agenda. And, and, and it was really a recognition on their part that their policy agenda wasn't very popular. The American people didn't like what they were selling and, and democracy was messy. And so rather than try to convince your fellow voters of, of the policy ideas they're putting forth, it was much simpler simply to try to convince five unelected lawyers wearing black robes to decree, decree that policy answer for the rest of the country. And so if, if you compare on the Democratic side, when they're nominating judges, they're looking for activists that were, will rule in favor of the policies they support. Uh, in my view, we shouldn't be looking for Republican judges. We shouldn't be looking for judges who will rule in favor of whatever policy we might support. Instead, the role of a judge is to apply the law and apply the Constitution to stay out of policy fights. And, and one of the great virtues of that, I, look, I, I can understand why if, if the court happens to rule in favor of a policy you like, you could be very happy and say, yay, we won. But there are almost no democratic checks on that. It, it is essentially being governed by philosopher kings who are not accountable to the people. And, and the Constitution was designed on contested policy questions for the, for the decision makers to be accountable to we the people, meaning the voters, if you don't like the policy decision, you ought to be able to throw the bums out. That's, that's the virtue of the elections we have. And, and, and so I, I believe the right thing for the court is to focus on the law and the constitution and leave policy questions to the elected branches of government. Yeah, we have been hearing dire threats, not just from the kind of the frenzied left of movement, but from actual United States Democrat senators yeah. about hacking the court, uh, about frankly contesting in some weird way, Senator Cruz, uh, uh, Justice Barrett down the road. Can you give folks a sense of A, how, how dangerous are those threats about court packing? But then also how dangerous are these other uh, more nebulous threats about the legitimacy of Justice Barrett and other Trump-nominated Senate-confirmed justices or judges at lower levels, because it's odd what we're hearing coming from a lot of these Democrat senators. Yeah, I, I believe the threats are 100% real and deadly serious. Uh, the, the, the far left right now, they're consumed with anger. They're consumed with rage. The, the unifying feature on the left is they hate Donald Trump with, with an all-consuming passion. And I think that anger was already at, at historic levels. And then this Supreme Court vacancy occurred. Uh, to borrow a line from, from Spinal Tap, now it goes to 11. Yeah. Um, they're beside themselves. And they're beside themselves because the court is their vehicle for power. And they feel their vehicle for winning policy battles for enforcing power on the American people is slipping away. So, so what does it mean the threats to pack the court? Listen, I, we're a week away from the election. I, I don't know what's gonna happen next Tuesday. Uh, I am very concerned. I think the election is incredibly volatile. 
I think the left, it will show up in massive numbers. I hope and pray that due to the hard work of every, everyone on this call, that everyone else will show up, that we turn out common sense conservatives, people who love liberty. If we do, we'll win. But, but if our voters stay home, it could be a really ugly election day. If that happens, if we wake up in January and we have a Biden-Schumer-Pelosi government, I, I shudder to think what that will mean for the country because I think the radicals are driving the train on the Democratic Party. If that happens, in the opening weeks of the Senate, I believe Chuck Schumer will end the filibuster, uh, which means the minority loses any ability to stop the radical agenda they want to jam through the court. I think we will see a policy agenda that, that, that is more extreme. I think in two years, Biden, Schumer, and Pelosi would do more damage than Obama did in eight years. And I think one of the elements that they intend to do is to pack the US Supreme Court, to increase the number of judges from nine, either to 11 or to 13. And the reason is simple. They want to immediately add four new left-wing activists so they have a majority on the court to decree the policy outcomes they want. And, and, and those results are breathtaking in how extreme and radical they are. And, and to your point on that, it would simply be a straight legislative majority. Just Can you help folks understand? Because some folks, I think, have the mistaken impression that it's like a constitutional amendment or that's not the case at all. It would simply be, if they did away with the filibuster, a straight 50 votes if they had the presidency. Is that correct? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. The Constitution itself doesn't specify the number of justices. It leaves that to Congress. Uh, over the history of our country, the number of justices has varied. It has been as low as five. It's been as high as 10. That being said, we've had nine justices for 150 years. Um, and we have seen a Democratic president try to pack the Supreme Court. In 1937, FDR famously tried to pack the court. He was unhappy that the court was striking down some of the New Deal programs. And so he introduced legislation, pushed for legislation to increase the number of justices from nine to 15. And actually, even though he had massive Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress, his own party pressed back. And what his own party argued is that if we did this, it would destroy the independence of the judiciary. It would overly politicize the court. It would do enormous damage to the rule of law. Uh, the difference is, I don't believe there are any Democrats willing to push back today. You don't see anyone. I mean, look, there's a reason Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris are doing such gymnastics refusing to answer this question. They know it's incredibly unpopular uh, to, to want to pack the court. And yet that's what their base is demanding. And I think if they win a majority, I, I believe they will do it. And without the filibuster, there will be nothing that, 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 that Republicans in, in the Senate or House can do to stop it. Do you think, Senator Cruz, that, you know, it's been interesting to me watch this, uh, watching this argument over the last several weeks, because the, the argument is that the court has been delegitimized. Um, by what has happened over the last uh, several weeks and, and perhaps you know, depending on who's, who's talking about the last few years. The, the challenge there is that if you're gonna make that argument, if they're gonna to try to make this argument for court packing as a way to re-legitimize the court, the current polls show that uh, the American people think that the Supreme Court have a, have a high opinion of the Supreme Court. 
uh, think that Amy Coney Barrett should have been confirmed and think that she should have been confirmed before the election. With that kind of popular support for what we've for, for what happened yesterday, how do you make a case that the court has been delegitimized and so you have to take this extraordinary step um, uh, of packing the court in order to, to fix it? You know, I would point to three things as, as, as indicia of how serious they are about this threat. Number one, as I mentioned, the fact that, that Biden and Harris keep refusing to answer the question. Listen, the right political answer, if they weren't going to do it, is to say, no, of course, we're not going to do that. I mean, I mean, it is very unpopular to pack the court. The only explanation for their crazy gymnastics is they intend to do it. Secondly, I don't think that the, the Democrats in Congress care. They don't care that it's unpopular with the people. This is about brute power. They know their ideas are unpopular. They, they want to use force to force them on the American people. And that's a real contrast between left and right. As conservatives, look, we have policy ideas that we believe deeply in, but, but we also recognize the democratic process that the way to, to advance those policy ideas is convince your fellow citizens, is win elections. But the third point, and this goes right to the question you asked that, that shows me that they intend to pack the court. We started seeing uh, two, three weeks ago, virtually every Democrat in the country begins shifting their talking point. And, and I will give the Democrats credit. They, they have a message discipline that when they have a talking point, it goes out from the top of their ticket all the way down to an elected dog catcher in Dubuque. I mean, everyone <laughs> uses the same talking point. And, and their talking point is, is that, well, Trump and Republicans have already packed the courts and they've been packing the courts for four years. Now, the problem with that, so they're trying to redefine what it means to pack the courts. And, and that's a deliberate effort to, to move the bar so that they can say, look, everyone learned, think, think back to junior high, everyone learned what packing the court is. Packing the court is expanding the number of justices. It's what FDR tried to do. Nominating justices to vacancies is not packing the court. It wasn't packing the court when George W. Bush did it, it wasn't packing the court when Bill Clinton did it, it wasn't packing the court when Barack Obama didn't, did it, it wasn't packing the court when Donald Trump did it. When there's a vacancy, nominating someone to fill that vacancy is the ordinary operation of the Constitution. And if you listen to Democrats' complaints that, that their rage at, at, at Justice Barrett and Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, they're mad that they lost the election, that the American people elected Donald Trump, and that the American people in three consecutive elections, 2014, 2016, 2018, have elected Republican majorities in the Senate. The Democrats are furious at the voters for that. And, and so I believe this whole effort to redefine legitimacy is all designed to set the predicate. If they have the power, they will force it through, and they're confident that their lackeys in the media will argue, well, there's just a legitimacy, just like Trump packed the court, which of course, by which they mean nominated a justice for a vacancy that occurred. The Democrats are doing exactly the same, which is destroying the, the integrity and independence of the court. Well, ladies and gentlemen watching, I know as you listen to Senator Cruz discuss this really dire threat of court packing, 
uh, and potentially working to delegitimize, in the words of some of the left, uh, the Supreme Court and, and lower courts as well. We've got to be ready for that fight. We certainly hope it does not come to that as a result of the elections that we're going to see in just a week. Uh, I'll tell you this, folks watching, over 770,000 of you, 770,000 Americans over this battle to confirm Justice Barrett took action through our I Volunteer effort. You reached out to your senators. You made your voices heard. 71,000 of you, roughly, or just over 70,000 of you, actually used our patch through to call the Senate, the Senate offices for your senators. Thank you for that. Thank you for that effort. I know it was encouraging to these Republican senators who, I got to tell you, the 52 Republicans who voted uh, like Senator Cruz did to do this nomination and confirmation, they deserve a lot of credit. Mitch McConnell deserves credit. They, you know, majorities matter. And at a moment, they cannot be a strategy, but boy, do they matter at a moment like this. And we saw the evidence of that with 52 Republican senators doing the right thing in the face of a lot of pressure. Uh, Senator Cruz, I know you have a historian's uh, sense of the court. With President Trump's three appointments or nominations and the Senate's confirmation of Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and now Barrett, is there a modern American president who potentially has impacted the Supreme Court as much as this president? Well, time will tell. Um, and one of, the, one of the challenges about Supreme Court nominations is they're typically measured in decades and not years. Um, one of the great frustrations, so the last chapter of my book, One Vote Away, I, I, I trace the history of Supreme Court nominations starting with Dwight D. Eisenhower. And a very frustrating aspect is the Democrats are very good at this, that, that they have almost a 100% success rate in that the justices they nominate consistently vote in almost every case exactly the way the Democrats want them to. Uh, Republicans, on the other hand, quite frankly, are terrible at this. Uh, we bat less than 500. And, and, and there's a reason for that. Um, you know, if you look at many of the worst judicial activists in history, they were Republican appointees. Earl Warren, William Brennan, John Paul Stevens, David Souter, Harry Blackman, the author of Roe versus Wade, was a Republican nominee. We are, are consistently terrible at that. And if you look at, it's not just a random fact that plays out, there's a pattern. Those justices that remained faithful to their oath, that remained faithful to the Constitution, people like Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito, and my former boss on the court, Chief Justice William Rehnquist, they all shared similar characteristics. They all had served in the executive branch. They all had been outspoken conservatives, constitutionalists. They'd stood for the Constitution. And here's the critical point, Tim. They'd paid a price. They had been pilloried. They'd been excoriated by the press, pounded by the press, and they hadn't faded. That to me is the most important test that I look to is, is have you been through the fires and held strong? On the other hand, every time a Republican nominates someone who doesn't have a proven record, who's a stealth nominee that hasn't really stuck their neck out for anything, but someone tells a Republican somewhere, trust me, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, they're going to be really great. 
almost without exception, they turn out to be train wrecks. They turn out to be disasters. And, and so I believe we should look for and require a, a, a proven record. Um, you know, in the book, I talk about a couple of decision points that were really critical. If you look at George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush 41, he had in the White House in one room, David Souter, and in another room, Edith Jones, who at the time was the strongest conservative appellate judge in the country, rock ribbed. And what did Bush do? He chose the easy option of Souter because Jones would have been a fight. She was a conservative and everyone knew it and it would have been a fight. And Souter, actually for a term or two, Souter was relatively conservative and then he migrated to the left. And by the way, justices only evolve, that's the polite term, one direction and that's to the left. And he ended up becoming one of the leaders of the left on the Supreme Court. Um, another example, if you look to the next decade, George W. Bush, Bush 43, had in one room, John Roberts, and in another room, Mike Ludig, my former boss on the Federal Court of Appeals. Ludig, like Edith Jones, was at the time the strongest conservative appellate judge in the country. And once again, George W. Bush made the easier decision. John Roberts had kept his cards close to the vest. He didn't have a proven record. Ludig would have been a fight because no, everyone knew he was a conservative and he had the scars to prove it. And so the president said, let's not have that fight. Let's run away from the fight. And we now see John Roberts, who he hasn't yet gone full David Souter, but John Roberts is the new Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, he is repeatedly joining with the liberal justices in the court. And so I think we need to be looking for a proven record and, and demanding it. Time will tell how Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and even Judge Barrett do. Um, I am hopeful that they, they will follow through on their oaths, but, but we won't have a full assessment of that for, for a decade or two. Now, is, is that one of the, obviously President Trump issued his, uh, his list of potential Supreme Court nominees. Um, and I, I think one of, the, uh, one of the things that that did is that it helps to provide an opportunity to correct some of that uh, historical pattern because groups are able to actually assess, they're able to get an idea of who are these, uh, who are these nominees, who are the people who are, uh, who are uh, on the list and you're able to, to actually have a real assessment of those folks. Do you think that's one of the advantages of the list? So I think it was a, a very positive step, and and it's it's something. Um, first chapter of my book, I detail that that the list, where the list came from, is is that when I endorsed the president in September of 2016, uh, my price for the endorsement was that the president commit to the Supreme Court list, that he commit in writing. These are the only judges that I will consider. And I also asked that the president add Senator Mike Lee to the list. Um, I think Senator Mike Lee, so if you look at the, the early choices, for example, Brett Kavanaugh's record on the Court of Appeals is not very different from John Roberts. And, and I express real concern. I, I hope that, that Justice Kavanaugh uh, stays faithful, but, but nobody, nobody would have argued that Brett Kavanaugh was a judge in the mold of Scalia or Thomas. Um, that, that was not the history of his, his record. Um, I think Mike Lee would have been a much better choice than either Gorsuch or Kavanaugh. 
but and I urge that emphatically to the president and, and, and on this particular question, he, he didn't take my counsel. I think Judge Barrett has a stronger record on the Court of Appeals than either Kavanaugh or Gorsuch. But again, uh, we've got years ahead of us to get a measure. It's also important to pause and reflect on, on why these things matter. That, you know, a lot of folks know the Supreme Court's important but they don't necessarily understand why exactly. And, and, and I, I think what matters to most people is that, is that our rights, our constitutional rights be protected. So free speech, that we have a right to speak and to criticize politicians and engage in the political process and not be censored. And, and the, the reason I, I wrote the book One Vote Away is that each chapter discusses a different constitutional liberty and, and explains what's going on in the big landmark cases and, and, and the kind of the behind the scenes war stories about how on each of our rights, the big landmark cases, many of which I helped litigate, were decided 5-4, meaning we're one vote away from losing our fundamental rights, whether it's free speech, whether it's religious liberty, the right to worship according to our faith, according to our conscience, there has been a four justice radical left minority on the court that the Democrats want to make a majority to take away your religious liberty and my religious liberty. There has been a four justice minority on the court that the Democrats want to make a majority to effectively erase the second amendment, our right to keep and bear arms from the constitution. And so what this fight is really all about is preserving our rights as Americans and preserving our ability in a democracy to have a say and to decide the direction of our country. And as we wrap up, Senator Cruz, give us a sense in this area of the judiciary, what gives you the most hope, some of which you've discussed, but what gives you the most hope and then candidly, what you fear the most in this area. So what gives me the most hope is, is what happened yesterday, uh, the confirmation of Judge Barrett. I think Judge Barrett has a, a strong record. I am hopeful uh, that, that she will prove strong and faithful on the court. And, and that, uh, that, that gives me hope and encouragement. I, I also have hope and encouragement. If you look at the confirmation hearings, I think Judge Barrett did a, a phenomenal job on the confirmation hearings. But I think it also revealed a great deal. You know, Sherlock Holmes famously talked about the dog that didn't bark. The dog that didn't bark in the confirmation hearings is that you didn't see Senate Democrats defending their radical positions on the Constitution. You didn't see Senate Democrats arguing for the Supreme Court stripping away our free speech rights. You didn't see Democrats arguing for taking away religious liberty uh, rights. We, you didn't see Democrats arguing for taking away the Second Amendment. They know their positions are very, very unpopular. And instead, they spent the whole time talking about Obamacare, which is a policy issue that is going to be decided in Congress. It's not a question. The Supreme Court is not going to be deciding what's the right health care system for America. That's, that's the job of the elected legislature. And, and, and I thought it was a powerful acknowledgment from the Democrats that they know their positions, the American people don't want them. We want 
principled constitutionalists. You know, the first day they tried to sh throw some hard shots at Judge Barrett, and I think she pretty effortlessly parried those. And by the second day of questioning, the Democrats had run to the hills. They, they realized they were losing and it was not benefiting them for the American people to hear Judge Barrett and hear her answers. They wanted to get this over with. Now, their hope and plan is if they win a week from now to use brute power to reverse this, to pack the court and to jam through their results. So, so let, me, let, let me give an example. Let's take an issue. Let's take an issue like life. Um, I've got a whole chapter in the book on, on life and Roe versus Wade. And Roe versus Wade fundamentally changed how the Supreme Court operates and how our democracy operates. Now, why is that? Well, for 200 years of our nation's history, questions of abortion had been decided in the elected legislature. They'd been decided at the state levels. In 1973, when Roe was decided, different states had different standards. And if you disagreed with your state's abortion laws, you could go and engage with the legislature and you could make an argument, this is what the law should be. And there was, there was a back and forth, there was a democratic process playing out. In Roe, the Supreme Court said, you idiot voters don't get to decide any of this. We are decreeing the policy answer for the whole country and the voters are, are disenfranchised. You don't get to, to, to resolve this. And, and much of the acrimony we've seen at the court for the next 50 years has stemmed from that battle. Now, by the way, if Roe were overturned, it would not immediately mean that abortion would become illegal. Personally, I, I am strongly pro-life. I, I believe every life should be protected from, from conception to natural death. But if Roe were overturned, that would not become the law. What it would mean is it would be back to the states and to Congress to make those determinations. And we would again have a democratic outlet to go and win those fights and win hearts and minds. Now, here's an interesting point that, that none of the Democrats addressed. In the chapter on life, I talk about a case at the court called Gonzalez versus Carhartt. That's a case I helped litigate, and it's a case that concerned the federal ban on partial birth abortions. Partial birth abortions, as you know, are the gruesome practice where, where an unborn child is partially delivered and then his or her life is taken from them. Um, overwhelming majorities of Americans oppose the gruesome practice of partial birth abortions. Uh, regardless of one's view on life, partial birth abortion for, for massive supermajorities of American voters are, are beyond the pale and a step way too far. Well, in Gonzalez versus Carhartt, the Supreme Court upheld the federal ban on partial birth abortion by a vote of five to four. That means four justices were prepared to strike it down and you want to know the stakes of this when it concerns life. If Joe Biden and the Democrats pack the Supreme Court, there will be a majority of the court to strike down every single restriction on abortion across the country, to mandate unlimited abortion on demand up until the moment of birth, partial birth abortion with taxpayer funding mandatory and no parental consent and no parental notification. That is an extreme view that is the view of today's Washington Democrats. 9% of Americans agree with that policy view. So if they actually had to fight through the democratic process for that outcome, they don't have the votes. But through the Supreme Court, they can just mandate it. 
I'll give another example. School choice. School choice is an issue I am deeply, deeply passionate about. Um, that being said, I don't want the Supreme Court to mandate school choice for the country. As much as I believe school choice is the right and just and good outcome, it's not the court's job to, to decree it for the whole nation. The place to fight for school choice is in the elected legislatures, in Congress, in the Senate. I lead the fight for school choice in the state legislatures. But one of the cases I talk about in the book is a case called Zellman versus Simmons-Harris. Zellman was a challenge to the state of Ohio's school choice program. Ohio put in place a school choice program to give scholarships to low-income kids, most of whom were African-American and Hispanic in, in very, uh, very challenging neighborhoods to give them scholarships, to give them hope and opportunity. That program was challenged in court. It went to the Supreme Court. The court upheld it five to four. There were four justices ready to strike down not just Ohio's school choice program, but every school choice program in America. If Joe Biden wins and they pack the Supreme Court, every school choice program in America will be struck down. That's an example of the radical agenda the left want, and it's why they care so much about the court, because they can't win elections with this agenda, but they can try to use brute force to force it on the country. Yeah. Well said, Senator Ted Cruz. Uh, it's also got me wanting to get out and take a look at that book of yours, which I have not read yet, I confess. So thank you for that as well, and for the leadership you've shown so consistently in the United States Senate. And for all of you watching, I tell you, over 770,000 of you took action from all 50 states, letting your senators hear your voices to confirm now Justice Barrett. Thank you for that. I can tell you in Americans for Prosperity, we're proud to stand with you on that. Uh, for Tim Phillips and Casey Maddox, uh, we, again, appreciate all you've done, and we look forward to talking to you in days to come. Goodbye, everyone.